it's so important to just detach emotions. I remember one time running a John Legend ad for Hintwater, and we found out this was when he he started. Him and Chrissy were uh, very anti-Trump, very yeah. publicly. Yeah, and a lot of our sales people who are, are Trump fans bought water, so uh, we had to stop running these ads. And I got in trouble for turning it off for that reason, simply because the founders couldn't understand or comprehend that their customers were also Trump supporters. The founders of Hint were yeah. like, hey, you need to turn this ad off? Exactly. And it was a profitable ad? It was a profitable ad. Wow. That's but, sacrilegious. You should have uh, called the police. You should yeah. <laughs> San Francisco police and then like, arrest these two motherfuckers. This is Limited Supply, the place for refreshingly real takes on what D2C is really like. We're your hosts, Nick and Moyes. Let's start talking about money. When I want to buy something, I want the choice of buying it on my phone. Creating an app for your brand makes your retention strategy way stronger and makes customers stickier. Go to tapcourt.com slash limited and get two months free. Okay, this is episode four. We're doing it live for the, and this is the first time we've done season three in person. Yeah. We prepared for this in your car outside, actually, yep. which was uh, interesting. Okay, we're going to talk about two things that have happened recently, or at least one thing that's happened recently, which is uh, CERTA's bankruptcy. And we're going to get into some slides as well. And then we're going to talk about mistakes that you feel you made purchasing uh, Long Weekend. Weekend. And then we're going to get into a Q&A. Yeah. Okay, fantastic. So CERTA uh, declared bank... I'm not sure if you saw this news, Nick. Uh, I was always really interested in mattresses because a long time ago I was going to start a mattress business instead of a deodorant business. So I was following this, and CERTA declared bankruptcy uh, January 23rd, so about eight days ago. And this will get into direct-to-consumer, I promise. CERTA was bought by a private equity firm for $3 billion. They had about $2 billion in debt. And they had three different tranches of debt. And uh, do you know about like how tranches of debt work? Or can I go through it really quickly? No clue. So uh, there's one lender that's in the first position. So basically, if anything gets ba- uh, anything goes bad, they get paid back first. It's like a preferred stock? Yeah, it's like a preferred stock. And then there's like common and then there's subordinated. Think of it that way. So the guys who were in the first position had $200 million in debt with CERTA. The guys who were in second position had $832 million. And the guys who were in third position had $862 million. And that's how you get to about $2 billion in debt. The business goes bankrupt. The guys who were in their first position continue to have $200 million in debt in the new business. The guys who were in the second position lose about, they get all the equity of the business. So they become shareholders and they have about $105 million in debt. And the guys in third position, which had $862 million, get nothing. They get fucked. They get fucked. So the reason I wanted to bring this up was because there was a mattress company called Tuft & Needle that started back in 2012 and ended up selling their business in 2018 to CERTA. And so this business was a rocket ship. It, it, it existed before Casper existed. In 2013, they did a million dollars. By 2017, they're doing $170 million, which is bananas growth. At this point, they've only raised $500,000 in debt as well. Like they raised $500,000 in debt. It was a little bit odd, actually. They raised it in 2015 when they were doing $42 million a year. And they did it to finance some like brick and mortar expansion. But really, I, I thought this was interesting uh, because, you know, when they were growing, uh, one of the things that they announced in 2014 is, hey, we're shutting down our viral growth campaign. They had a referral program. This thing accounted for 45% of their sales. Basically, if I refer you, I say, uh, you know, I get $50 towards a tuft and needle mattress and you get $50 towards a tuft and needle mattress. These were the only promotions they did and they shut them down. It was actually 50 
Yeah, it was $50. And they said, post this, it was still profitable. And they were like, look, one of our core tenants is fair and transparent pricing. No marketing gimmicks, no unfair uh, markups, promotions suck. Which I thought was, uh, you know, I always follow this brand because this was a, this was pre-native. So I was looking at this and I was like, these are the guys that I want to model my brand after. And then, you know, after they sold their business, they've got promotions on a daily basis. Uh, so this is their website today. President's Day sale, save up to $625 off mattresses. This started today or yesterday, the day before they were having a legacy sale, $200 off of the mattress. And I got to think, and like, you know, these guys have sold their business to Serta. The, you know, the terms weren't disclosed, but everyone thought it was around $500 million and everyone thought it was very stock heavy and not cash up front. And when was that acquisition? 2018. Okay. So about so five years They were ago. doing about 100 million. They were doing $170 million. Wow. Uh, and they announced it. So in 2017, they did $170 million. They've got 150 employees. I think they're like the one of the top selling products on Amazon. They're certainly number one on uh, mattresses on Amazon. 2018, they're working with Amazon to create Amazon-exclusive products they sell to, to Serta. The reason that I brought this up was because the business went bankrupt. Mm -hmm. And so the stock that they had is now, if they got stock and you know, none of the terms were disclosed, is worthless. So I got to thinking, like, what are some lessons that can come out of this bankruptcy? You know, one of the ones that I really liked is this Warren Buffett quote, uh, which is, when it's raining gold, reach for a bucket, not a thimble. Mm -hmm. Have you heard this before? I don't know what a thimble is. The thimble is like a small bundle like condom. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, something like that. I think it's used for sewing. I'm not entirely sure what it is, but it's basically a bucket this big. Okay. Have you ever played Monopoly? Yeah. Yeah. Of course. It attaches to your thumb. See, okay. got it. I'm not sure why it would attach to your thumb. But anyway, uh, basically, he's like, don't put out a thimble that's a tiny bucket, put out a huge bucket because it's raining gold. Right. And I got to thinking about Tuft and Needle, and I was like, why in 2014 and 2015, when they're rolling like a rocket ship, did they cancel the thing that was driving 40 Right, for $50 of gross revenue. $50 of gross revenue. Probably like five, 10 bucks in cogs, maybe. Yeah, I, I mean, like, um, and why didn't they run promotions? Right. Like, why did they think they were better than the Nikes of the world and the Apples of the world that continue to promote their products? And I got to thinking about like, you know, look, during Black Friday, all of these brands were like, should we run promotions or should we not run promotions? Mm -hmm. I have no idea why people don't do promotions. It doesn't make any sense. There's a, I mean, you know, Jolie. Yeah. That guy's like notorious for saying, I will no never run a promotion. Really? Yeah. Even on Black Friday, they didn't run, they didn't run any promotion. What do you think about that? I think Jolie's a little different because they have like the pretty good product market fit right now. But I think, I mean, I don't think anybody... I, the, the thing we always hear is, you know, devalues our brand. Yeah. But no one gives a fuck about your brand most of the time, unless you're Nike or Apple. And those guys discount. Yeah. I don't think it devalues your brand. I think that customers can expect it. And if, as long as it's not like the J. Cruz of the world, where every day you get a new email with a different discount. Right. It doesn't devalue your brand. Yeah. I, I also think certain categories, like if you're in a category where your competitors who sell a very similar maybe even commoditized product like mattresses. Yeah. You know, there, there's no reason somebody would go to Tuft & Needle if they're getting basically another mattress at a heavier discount. Yeah, I think that's true as well. I always go back to like this slide with their revenue and I'm like, okay, they said in this uh, blog post in 2014, they're like, we've canceled this referral program and it's driving our, like it's hurting our growth, mm -hmm. but we're okay with that because we want transparent pricing for everybody, which is a value that the brand doesn't live by today. And that's not a big deal. Like I don't, you know, there's nothing wrong with changing your mind. I just wonder how much cash they left on the table 
because when they had product market fit and uh, owned the market and pre-Casper and pre-Purple you know Purple and uh, all the other mattress companies, they didn't do anything about it. They're like, look, we're growing. We've got product market. We're just growing. We can grow nicely and we don't have to spend on referral programs or do promotions. How much cash did they leave on the table as a result of that? Probably a shitload. I mean, it looks like, so Casper launched in 2014 and Purple launched in 2015. And I'm sure as soon as those guys launched, it was just basically yeah, case to the bottom. Yeah. yeah. I never appreciated when people were like, we never run sales uh, because I always think you're leaving cash on the table. Yeah. It's uh, like the novice, the novice thing to say. Yeah. Yeah. That is a novice thing to say. People are constantly worried about their brand, but they shop from Nike and love it. They shop from Apple and love it. Right. Um, and they never feel like uh, those, they're like their bread equity is right. being reduced. When they buy a pair of Nike shoes, they're not like, you know what? Nike sucks. They're like, Nike's amazing. Right. So anyway, this is one of the lessons that I think came out of it is, uh, you know, they were like, promotions suck. Now they're running President's Day sales. When's the bankruptcy still start? Well, first, there's $2 billion in debt, okay? Uh, that's a lot of debt to, to have to purchase. And they've already, like, restructured it, basically. Uh, yeah. So the bankruptcy sale is going through pretty smoothly. Uh, you know who else did this is uh, Allbirds. Mm-hmm. Like a couple of years ago, or maybe a year ago, when we were doing our uh, podcast a year ago, the first time ever I saw Allbirds discount on Black Friday. Yep. And I was like- And I too. Yeah. Last year, I think, first time. These brands have finally gotten it. They think that growth, like when they have product market fit, they're like, we think we're too good for discounts. Right. And then when they start discounting, like, you know, as entrepreneurs, we're like, you know, what we see is that means your growth is sort of flatlined. Yeah. I also think there's just other ways to discount, like- Gift with purchase, yeah. you know, go find if you're selling like uh, bed sheets yeah. and you can add a pillowcase yeah. that costs you, you know, a $2 in COGS and you can mark it up as a $25 value. Yeah. That's a discount, but it's not, then you're not affecting your product. You're, you're right about that. I, I have no problem saying here's 10, 15, 20% off. Like, you know, make it work for you. Right. Um, there's a, do you know Ezra Firestone? Mm-hmm. When I started in e-commerce, I started going to his conferences and they were fantastic. I don't know if he still does them. And he's like, I run a sale every six weeks. And I was like, yeah. this guy's running the sale every six weeks and has like a legitimate brand, you know? Right. Um, I'm not sure if six weeks is the right cadence, but like, uh, I think discounting needs to be done. Uh, okay. The other thing I wanted to move on to is uh, I'd say like, um, you know, I think a lot of these brands aren't honest with themselves. You know, I always look at this slide when I think about direct-to-consumer, and I'm like, we thought that we were this guy who was, who was like holding back the tanks and holding back brick-and-mortar stores, and that's not the case. Like, these tanks in Tiananmen Square ran over direct-to-consumer. Yeah. And I think the, uh, not enough direct-to-consumer founders are just honest with themselves when it comes to the scope of what direct-to-consumer can achieve. I think maybe five or six years ago, when Tuft & Needle was doing that program, they were like, hey, our direct-to-consumer model is going to upend brick and mortar stores entirely. In fact, when they mer- like they they said they weren't acquired by Serta, they said that they merged with Serta. Right. And when they merged with them, they're like we need to get them to sell Serta mattresses online, not sell tuft and needle mattresses in brick and mortar stores. Right. And so they were like uh the new business model for mattresses is going to be the internet and not brick and mortar stores. And they were completely wrong. They weren't honest with themselves in 2018 and 2019 and 2020 where their sales started to flatline and they're like look our, our conception that all sales will happen on the internet for mattresses is wrong and we need to adjust our model. It's so important to just detach emotions. I remember one time running a John Legend ad for Hintwater and we found out, this was when he, he started, him and Chrissy were uh, very anti-Trump, very yeah. publicly. Yeah. And a lot of our sales, people who are, are Trump fans, bought water. So uh, we had to stop running these ads 
And I got in trouble for turning it off for that reason, simply because the founders couldn't understand or comprehend that their customers were also Trump supporters. The founders of Hint were yeah. like, hey, you need to turn this ad off? Exactly. And it was a profitable ad? It was a profitable ad. Wow. That's but, sacrilegious. You should have uh, called the police. You should yeah. call San Francisco police and then like, arrest these two motherfuckers. Yeah, <laughs> yeah the honesty is a real thing. Yeah. The other way, like, you know, we were talking about this in the car, like Cometeer sort of had a, a round of layoffs recently, which really sucks for the brand. But I was looking into their numbers and I saw on Twitter that someone's like, these people raised at an $800 million valuation for Cometeer Coffee. It's a technology company. Yeah, I have no idea how Cometeer Coffee is an $800 million brand. It makes no sense. Like, Starbucks, Starbucks good. Yeah, there's, Starbucks is a $100 billion brand or a $125 billion company. How is Cometeer Coffee, which no one has ever heard of, worth $800 million. How are you going to out sense? How are you going to live through that valuation when you're fundraising or trying to exit that business? Yeah. What, what was the other company we looked up in the car? Wendy's. Yeah. Wendy's is like four, a little yeah. over 4 billion. Yeah. That's saying Cometeer is worth just under 25% of Wendy's. Of Wendy's. Yeah. Wendy's it's, nuts. It's kill your valuation. <laughs> it's absolutely bananas. The way I always think about it is like, uh, you know, when I joined P or like when Native was a part of P&G, I would talk to the brands at uh, Procter and Pampers is a $10 billion a year brand. They were the first brand at P&G to crack $10 billion. And I'm like, this brand is doing $10 billion. I think every e-commerce business I know combined probably does not do what one Pampers does. Right. Uh, and so I think it's really important to be honest with yourself and be like, look, we're not going to be able to get everybody to purchase our product uh, through our website. And we need to go omni-channel where our consumers are. And I think that was a big mistake at Tufton Needle. At Native, you know, we were probably do it. We were at a 60 million run rate on direct to consumer before we ever touched uh, brick and mortar stores. We were selling more, like we were on Amazon. We got onto Amazon. We were the number one selling deodorant. We were selling more deodorant on our website that was built on WordPress mm -hmm. than the deodorants that Amazon was selling combined. All of the deodorants at Amazon combined. And like, you know, we were honest with ourselves and we're like, this is great. There's 5% of people are buying deodorant on the internet. We have 4% of those people. Like 4% are from Native. Yeah. The other 95% are still shopping at Target and at Walmart, and uh, we need to go to where that consumer is. And so today, Native does over $100 million a year at Target, and Target is a way bigger channel than their direct-to-consumer website. And, you know, Amazon is nearly as big a channel as their direct-to-consumer website. Like, we were just honest with ourselves, and we're like, we have to go chase revenue, right. and that uh, chasing revenue means going to where consumers are. It's so true. Especially even with the Amazon debate. I feel like that's kind of fizzled out now. Yeah. because When should I get on Amazon, Amazon if I should be on Amazon? Yeah. Yeah, I fully agree. You, you kind of just have to go wherever the people who have money and are going to give it to you are. Yeah, uh, that's right. That's the beauty of this game. Yeah. Um, okay, let's switch gears and talk about uh, mistakes you made when selling, uh, or I'm sorry, when buying Long Weekend. All right, so you know we bought uh, Long Weekend. What was the purchase price? 1.6. All financed. It was all financed. Okay. So no cash and in the pocket up front. Correct. Wow, I like that. So the way the deal was structured actually doesn't, it doesn't affect us that much. What, I, what I'm about to say, yeah. what we fucked up. But basically, so like looking back on it, we have Long Weekend. We have another brand that we started from scratch. And, you know, that probably took us four months to build from the ground, including branding, site, inventory, creative, shoots, all that stuff. Yeah. What was the cost of building that? Well, I mean, most of the team is like in-house. I would say the main cost was inventory. What was your first PO for inventory? 200K. Okay. So let's say 200K in inventory, maybe another, call it 20K between 
20K for site de development, you know, there's team time, which isn't really counted. Let's say 300,000. Sure, 300K. And what we've been able to do in six months compared to what we've been able to do from buying a brand is completely different. Yeah. So going from zero, right, we can basically, we can dictate everything. We can dictate the messaging. Yeah. We can dictate what type of customer you want. Yeah. We can dictate what's the angle to separate ourselves from competition versus with Long Weekend, we bought it and it has, the, it already has a customer base. It yeah. has a subscriber base. Yeah. It's got a customer list. Now, here are the things we fucked up. Yeah. There was a day when I texted you and I was like, do you have a, a Brooklyn-based office I can set people up in to make product? And you were like, <laughs> you're an idiot. <laughs> yeah. So then we connected with uh, Mary. Yeah. So Mary got the product and basically like the inventory that came, it basically came in a massive container. Yeah. The inventory was, you know, pretty rough inside. It wasn't yeah. packed properly, which that we couldn't have forecasted. The materials also kind of came in buckets. But the problem was that there was just a lot of inconsistencies. So, for example, the weight of the stick yeah. was wrong, which I should have caught that, right? I should have just, like, bought a stick and weighed it and see what, seen what the actual weight was. Mary literally picked it up. She's like, this is not four. And I was like, what are you talking about? It's printed right there. She's like, get a scale. I'll tell you. So it said four ounces on the stick of deodorant? And it was but it's three. Okay, gotcha. So, uh, so that so was we, one. That's not a big deal. Yeah. No, we, we bought, I think, 1,200 stickers in LA. Had you re-stickered them? We stickered every single one. To three ounces? Yeah, because Mary's like, you don't want to get sued. Oh, you're not going to get sued over that kind of stuff. Hey, I don't crazy? Know. I don't know. Just saying. All right? Brown guys in legal don't do well. Um, the other one was... In the country we can escape to. Yeah, true. That's okay. We'll never find it. <laughs> we'll just be in a cave yeah. running Facebook ads. <laughs> Uh, my life right now. Yeah. <laughs> so the other thing was like, I probably should have hired a chemist to just come in and audit the recipes yeah. and look at the go product. Formulas, go, yeah, go in yeah. the formulas, uh, which I didn't. I was just like, cool, this works. We'll take it. Yeah. And then the last couple ones was like, you know, things we definitely, we did a little bit, but we didn't go too extensive on, you know, thinking through like the consumer shopping cadence of like a shampoo versus a conditioner versus a body wash versus a deodorant and how to account for those. And then the last one is really like AOV. Like the AOV is so low, we can't really even run an ad. What's the AOV? Between 30 and 35. So okay. no, you have a post-purchase upsell, an upsell on the ad. Yeah. Okay. But it's still not there. And so what we've realized now is, well, one, we're probably not going to buy another business like yeah. this. Yeah, yeah. But two is we have to completely change the brand. Yeah. Elevate it. New products, yeah. new SKUs. We're wiping half the SKUs off. Yeah. That's the only way this thing gets to a better AOV and to a point where we can actually grow it with yeah. ads. Okay. So you don't like buying a product. You didn't like buying it because you basically thought, I, I guess if you had done all that diligence, if you're like, okay, this says four ounces and it's three ounces. I got a chemist and they said, you know, okay, this is a formula, whatever. Yeah. How would that have changed the outcome? Would that have done anything or not done anything? Yeah. Or you just been like, I, hey, I don't want to buy brands anymore. I want to start them because I get to- Yeah, I probably would have done the latter. Just yeah. decided, all right, let's just, uh, you know, at this point, we basically bought a logo, an email list, some brand trust, some subscribers, and, you know, that's pretty much it. I don't yeah. know that it was worth the purchase price, although we're going to turn it into something worth more. Well, yeah. Uh, also, you didn't pay anything for it, so it was definitely worth the purchase price. Like, yeah, it was zero cash. She had still- yeah. Uh, I bought this brand a while ago, a few years ago for, um, it was doing about 500,000 in EBITDA 
and it was uh, selling through a bunch of channels, direct to consumer, Amazon, in some brick and mortar stores, and like, you know, the Costco onlines of the world. And I had the exact opposite experience where it actually grew a bunch. I put out this tweet a long time ago and I was like, hey, I'm looking for a CEO to run a brand. Do you remember that tweet? Yeah, yeah. You will become a millionaire if you you join the the CEO of this company. The guy who runs that business now will probably make a million dollars this year, I think, or something close to it. Uh, We've gone from $500,000 in EBITDA to about 5 million in EBITDA over the course of the last 18, 24 months. You know, the brand continues to be on fire. Like uh, last month was our first $2 million month in sales for the brand. As an Outsider looking in, I'm not operating the brand. I have no idea why this brand is doing so well, which is yeah. so crazy. And I talked to the CEO and I'm like, why is this brand doing so well? And he's like, I don't really know either. Like Amazon sales are just on fire and it's an incredible uh, product. I'm on the opposite side of things right now. Yeah. Where I'm like, I want to buy brands because they just seem to work. Like <laughs> I have this, uh, a CEO that I don't have to ever talk to. Right. He runs it himself. There's a bunch of EBITDA. He's incentivized uh, where he gets paid a percentage of that EBITDA. From where we like, we purchased it at 500K and we're like, oh God, I don't remember the exact percentage. I think he gets paid like, you know, 10 to 20% basically of the first 500K of EBITDA. And after he gets above 500K, he gets 20 to 30. I don't know, remember what the band was. Maybe it's 20%. Yeah. And it's phenomenal and it just does well. There were a couple of mistakes I made when purchasing it. Like, I didn't do enough diligence in terms of what the inventory, what inventory the brand had. They probably had, um, like, I want to say we paid $750,000 for the inventory or something like that. And probably $200,000 we had to write off right away because when you looked at it, you're like, it never turns. Yeah. No, it didn't come damaged. Oh, it just it never turns. Yeah. yeah. They had $200,000 in inventory that would never move. Yeah. You know, you mentioned that you were moving all the long weekend stuff from one 3PL to another 3PL. Yeah. First, every 3PL, as soon as you leave, fucks up with your products. 100%. And so w- the one thing I found is you can go there and be, go to the warehouse manager and be like, hey, I'm going to Venmo you $200 when you put the stuff on a uh, pallet right. and uh, leaves. And I'm going to Venmo you $300 when we receive it and it makes, uh, we make sure that it's in good shape. Yeah. So you're going to get $500 in your pocket. Just make sure that you pack it. When you pack it, you're not an asshole. We anticipated that. And we just basically sold through in one warehouse. And then the next shipment just goes to the second warehouse. Then, okay, gotcha. Yeah. And so- you like starting a brand more just because you control the messaging. Yeah, control the messaging, control like who our customer becomes. Yeah. I think also like, you know, another another thing with Long Weekend is like for every change we want to make, it's like, okay, well then how does this affect current list subscribers? You know, this is that's basically what we paid for, right? Yeah. Like how does it affect the thing we paid for or the, the recurring subscribers too? Yeah. When I was a native, like we changed our formula a bunch and I was always like, we never have the bandwidth. We're like, we're never at a scale where changing formulas or changing products isn't justified because it's a better product. Right. So if you're doing under $20 million a year in revenue or under $10 million a year in revenue, I think you should just go and you should just be like, we think this is a better product. We might lose 20% of the subscribers we already have, but this is a de minimis amount. Right. Our goal is to hit a much larger number, uh, number of subscribers. And so I would just aim for that. Yep. I'm going to text our team to nuke it right now. Yeah. To, uh, to change the product, you mean? Yeah, yeah. These businesses are built on low CACs and low AOVs, but really where you start making money is when you get to a repeat purchase rate that's uh, sustainable and makes you a ton of EBITDA. I think I told this story before, like in January 2017, I was like, I want to get to a million dollars in returning customer revenue by November or December of 2017. And we got there in May because, you know, there's this massive snowball effect once you get great product in the hands of a bunch of customers. And so if you're at under $10 million, your existing customer base is great. 
but it's not going to get you from 10 million to 100 million. You need to acquire a lot more customers. And those new customers have to have a better product than you had in the past. Right. And that's how I always thought about it. Like today, if I were running native, I'd have uh, second thoughts about changing the product because it's just in the so hands of so many people. Yeah. But at under $20 million, it's a no brainer. What were mistakes you feel like you made if you reflect back on selling native, like things that you wish you did differently? I think one thing I didn't do well enough was uh, I wasn't short-term oriented. I always thought about like, try, well, like I want to build a long-term sustainable and successful business. And so one of the things that we would do at Native is if you clicked add to cart, we had this pop-up where we'd say, if you purchase one stick of Native de- uh, coconut and vanilla deodorant, we'd either try to upsell you to a three-pack for $30 or a subscription for $10. So it would almost be a downsell. Mm-hmm. You go from a $12 price point to a $10 price point, you have a better LTV. And so I was building this like uh, long-term sustainable business and I was like, Let's, let me upsell you to a subscription because I'm gonna make more money over the next five years if you're a subscriber than if I get three sticks of deodorant in your hands right now. That seems like a really smart idea. You're building a long-term successful business, but guess what? Like your acquirer doesn't know that you're making these great trade-offs. Right, if they're just- They even know what subscription is. They know what subscription is, but like, you know, they don't know what we're doing there. Right. And so I made this, like when I realized that I was selling the business, I should have flipped the switch and been like, fuck the long-term goals of the business. Let me go from $12 AOB to a $30 AOB. The business is going to do much better or it'll look better in the short term at the expense of the long term. Profit will go up. Revenue will go up. And when I go to P&G, I can basically have a lot more leverage when I'm negotiating the price. So I thought that was a really big mistake. I wasn't short-term oriented. I was long-term oriented. Yeah. So I think that was one of them. The other one, um, has anyone here sold their business already or are people sell? Okay. Everyone's in their business. Okay. If you're selling your business, the, like once you realize that you want to sell your business, I would call a, a trust. Uh, I'd call up an attorney to build trusts for you so that you can reduce your tax burden. And then I would also hire really aggressive tax attorneys to try and reduce your tax burden. Oof. You know, I was in California and trying to avoid California state income tax. And I was more, like pretty successful on that. You know, I own 90 some percent of the business. I only had to pay California state income tax on like 7% of the business wow. when we sold the business. The other part I was able to put in a different bucket and get away from California state income tax in a legal way. Like, right, I was yeah. fully legal, but it was just aggressive tactics. And I had to call, you know, I probably call, uh, I used to be an attorney. I contacted 10 attorneys and nine of them were just like, just pay the tax. It's, it's not a big deal. And I was like, go fuck yourself. Yeah, the fucking attorneys. Uh, <laughs> I couldn't believe it. I was like, go pay the tax. Yeah. Fuck you. Yeah. This is my pay money. me a thousand dollars an hour, and I'm going to tell you to go pay the tax. Yeah, I did not pay their bills. They gave me that <laughs> advice. I was like, "You're not an you're, you're not that type of attorney that I yeah. need." And so I just went attorney shopping, and well, we got to a guy who was like, "Hey, why don't we think about these structures?" And like, you know, we asked around, and those structures worked out. And I wish that more people would do that. I feel like a lot of times people come to me right when they're about to sell their business, and they're like, "How should we think about taxes? And how should we think about the uh, structure of our business?" And often it's too late. Like you could do a lot more if you do it today than if you're in the sale process. Right. Um, like once you're in the sale process and have a valuation of your business, it gets a lot tougher to say, like you can put your tax, you can put your business into a, a trust based on the fair market value of the business today. Fair market value of a business today is really obscure number. The fair market value of a business when you're in a sale process, someone has written you an LOI, it's not an obscure number anymore. Like there's a number to be had that the IRS is going to be aware of. So you got to do it before you start that sale mm. process and not like during the sale process. That makes sense. Do you remember what your fair market value was? We didn't do that. Uh, that was a big mistake. Uh, okay. That's why I'm answering the question. That was, yeah, yeah, yeah. But like, you know, one of the things that we did, like um, 
if you're selling your business and you're a C-Corp, you have to pay 23.8% taxes. If you're an S-Corp, you only have to pay 20% taxes. Hmm. And so like when you're getting your business ready for sale, you want to know what type of entity structure you have to try and save on those taxes. Are there any other attorney tricks that you know? Are there any other attorney tricks other than like going shopping for attorneys? Yeah, well, you were an attorney. Yeah, yeah. Uh, go shopping. Like, you know, attorneys, like you ask 10 different attorneys and they'll all give you different responses. You want guys who are aggressive. They're not like, oh, just do the easy thing, which is to pay taxes. You want guys who are going to minimize their tax burden and get excited about that. Right. Like I could tell I found the attorney that I wanted to work with because he was talking about structures and I could hear the intonation of his voice go up. And he was like, he's like, we're going to be able to save you X millions of dollars. And he was excited and that got me excited. And I was yeah. like, this is my guy. That's the guy. That's awesome. But there, I, I wish that uh, I had done a better job of that as well. The other thing I wish I had done a better job of is I wish I was more... I, you know, I didn't know what my business was when we were trying to sell it. I thought, you know, if eight people on this team were holding it together with duct tape, right. um, Facebook ads could collapse on us at any time. We made a deodorant once that had a glove in it. So someone was using it and they're like, it looks like there's a finger in this deodorant. Like they'd used it. And I was like, what are you talking about? They sent a photo. And I was like, oh, fuck. It looks like there's a human finger in there. And they're like, turned out it was just a glove. Yeah. And so, you know, we refunded them and like sent an apology letter and all that kind of stuff. And that was great. A couple other times people found like metal pieces in their mm -hmm. deodorant because our manufacturing quality control wasn't what it should have been. And, you know, all of these things were in my head when I was doing this. I was like, fuck, imagine if someone goes on TikTok or like on uh, Instagram and it's like, I found right. a screw in my deodorant. It's not good for the Brit. Yeah. So all of these things were in my head and I was like, oh no, I got to sell this business before one of these things collapses or before one of these things takes us down. And that's not the case. Rarely do those things really take you down. One of the guys who was trying to buy our business was this guy who ran a company called Dr. Teal's, which is an Epsom salt. Are you familiar with those guys? No. It's huge at Walmart. It's in 5% of all households in the United States. It's wow. Epsom salt. Uh, and the guy who was running it was this shark, and I loved him. He asked me, he's like, have you ever been seen our management presentation? He's like, have you ever been sued? And I was like, yeah, we've never been sued, thank God. And he's like, you're not a real company if you've ever been sued. Yeah. This is a fucking hobby still. And I was like, holy shit, this guy thinks I have not been sued, and that's a bad sign of the business? Yeah. I wish I'd just gotten more comfortable with that type of risk. Today, I'm a lot more comfortable with it. When people right. like, you know, that's why when you were like four ounces to three ounces, I'm like, don't worry about it. Yeah, yeah. Now I'm really comfortable with risk. You should I mean, you're also like a Harvard law graduated attorney. Yeah, yeah. But, <laughs> that guy, well, let me tell you that a Harvard law graduated attorney would be like, don't worry about that four ounces to three ounces. Just pay me like, a thousand an hour. It's not, you, know, you don't have to pay me anything. It's not going to come back to bite you. Like, there have been brands that I've seen where the ingredient list is wrong, where mm -hmm. they've got allergens and they post not, no allergens, where it's not vegan and they post vegan where they say it's gluten-free and it's not gluten-free. All that kind of stuff, ha stuff happens. And not just from small brands like ours, but massive brands by the P&Gs and Unilevers of the world. Like everyone's human and makes mistakes. And, you know, there's contamination and leaks and wrong packaging or some guy doesn't know what he's doing and puts the wrong bottle on the assembly line. You know, that kind of stuff happens and everyone gets through the day. The one thing I would say is if, if you're worried about that litigation stuff, Attorneys only come after you when they see big dollars. Like mm -hmm. attorneys will come after PNG because they're like, you have a big budget to settle these things or read about PR risk, all that kind of stuff. Uh, if I contact an attorney, I was like, hey, I went to Long Weekend. They wrote four ounces and it was three ounces. They look up Long Weekend and be like, this business was purchased for zero dollars. Yeah, you're going to yeah. get out of it. Yeah. Um, so I wouldn't worry about that kind of stuff. You, oh, be, uh, I wish I was more risk tolerant. And I'd encourage everyone else to be more risk tolerant. So. Good advice. Consumers want to buy on your app, not your website. Turning your Shopify store into an app creates the ultimate mobile experience, leading to higher sales, conversion rates, and creating more diehard fans. Here's an example. The Messy Store tripled sales in one month after launching their app. 
and had a 2.4 times higher conversion rate in their app versus their website. Sound good? Go to tapcourt.com slash limited and get two months free. Okay, should we move to some Q&As? Yeah, let's do it. Where's the, uh, there's a ball or a mic pillow somewhere around here. So thinking about the spectrum of Joe Lee to J. Crew in discounts, where's the sweet spot? Uh, closer to J. Crew than Jolie. If you're running heavy growth advertising, I think it's worth running a discount. Like, you know, otherwise you're spending dollars bringing people to your site. I mean, majority of people are always looking for a discount or just a reason to buy, right? That's why, that's why landing pages work so well. You can convince them of the reason to buy and, you know, a purchase that's going to make them not sound stupid when somebody asks them, why'd you buy X, right? So I think, yeah, I think you should always run a discount, even in, you know, depending on your category that you sell in, you know, apparel tends to be higher for new customers. Beverage tends to be like 20 to 30%. You can kind of find your categorical sweet spot, but I think it's almost silly to just spend traffic, especially in prospecting, because then you're basically, you're spending money educating somebody and then your competitor is going to get all the benefit of it just because they're giving, you know, 15, 20% off. And then I think all, you know, the, the annual like merchandising moments, Valentine's Day, President's Day, Memorial Day, Labor Day, you should run a discount because that's when people are ready to buy. And if you don't, then, you know, it's not, no, nobody here sells a product that they can't find an exact replica of without spending 20 seconds on Google. And so by not discounting, you're just giving ammo to everybody else. You know, when you try to sell your business, you want a healthy repeat purchase rate. So if you're looking at non-prospecting, if you're looking at retention, uh, and you could boost that re uh, repeat purchase rate, you're going to get paid so much for being able to uh, boost it. If you can go from 25% repeat purchase rate to 35% by discounting, that's a massive increase in retention, and you will get paid on the other end of that. I always think about it as just uh, part of the, my gross margins, where I'm like, okay, my AOV or my uh, sale price is not $50, it's $45, because every customer I should expect to take a 10% discount, and I'm okay with that. That's the cost of being, like, you know... My sale price is actually $45. I've increased it to 50 artificially, and then I've given 10% away. A large part, uh, going back to the top to needle and commentary conversation, a large part of the quick rise and fall of direct-to-consumer businesses can, of course, be attributed to macroeconomic conditions, zero interest rates, and the pandemic. But another part of it could be part of the repositioning of CPG as SaaS or technology-focused, when over the last uh, few months, we've learned that the nature of revenue is different, it's not truly recurring, and the margin profile are completely different. But VCs and management teams did buy that story. Moving forward, what role do you see VCs playing in CPG and e-commerce? And in what instances should founders be looking to raise outside capital of that nature? It's a good question. I, mean, I think generally VCs, VCs are like TechCrunch reporters. They're trained at you know, money, but they're not trained in the field. They're basically playing the casino, I think. I mean, obviously some VC bets are incredible bets, but especially in the world of CPG, it was like there was a few brands that kind of kicked that off. And then there was just this flood of capital that came in. And that's how you get Comets here raising at, you know, nearly a billion dollar valuation. When that was happening, the real winners were like Thrasio, who were just buying everything for two to three times EBITDA. I don't know. I feel like with brands, it's, it's hard to imagine what you know, how to value it. I always think of, you know, when brands, when a brand sells, it's really for the sale of the brand, right? Like when Kate Spade gets traded to Tapestry, Tapestry is not buying a customer list. They're buying the brand name 
that then they can do something with. And that's what the valuation dictates, or that's how the valuation is dictated. So I think, I mean, I think early stage venture got pretty carried away with that. You know, I've seen deals where it's like somebody's making, I don't know, 100K a month, they're valuing themselves at 30 million, or like they're pre launched, they haven't even launched, they don't even have a product prototype, and they're a $10 million company, which just sounds ludicrous to me. I think uh, VCs should play virtually no role until you're a $30 million brand. Like, uh, first, a lot of these businesses, you should be able to launch with a yeah. really small budget. But also, I think the business goes upside down really quickly when you're uh, when you raise dollars. So if you've raised at a twenty million dollar valuation or a fifty million dollar valuation, as you know, a Series A, well, you're going to have to find a home for that business at one point or another. And the multiples that CPG businesses trade at just aren't don't justify you know that fifty million dollar valuation down the line. Um, I think the right place where um, VCs and really it's more consumer private equity or consumer growth funds come in is when they come in and they buy a business and they buy 50% of it or 70% of it. Uh, and they're like, well, you're going to take a bunch of chips off the table. We're going to give you a bunch of cash so you don't have to worry about money again. Uh, but you still have enough skin in the game where you try to build a bigger business. That's a great place to get uh, excited about. And there's a lot of businesses that do that. You know, The VMGs of the world do that. You know, There's TSG, they do that as well. There's a lot of those consumer type of uh, uh, growth funds. I think that's where it's really exciting and where they can do something amazing. The bankers who represented Native, I remember they told me that uh, Two Faced was this like cosmetics brand, and the guys who sold Two Faced, the, uh, the founders of Two Faced, sold seventy percent of their business to a growth fund, and made you know hundreds of millions of dollars. And then when Two, like you know, the business grew a bunch more, and when they sold uh, the last thirty percent that they had, they actually made more in that thirty percent than they had in the first seventy percent, which is pretty nuts. But I think that's where things get exciting. At the early stage, uh, you know, you're basically setting yourselves up for failure because you'll never be able to achieve the early valuations that you're seeking based on the multiples existing market. You said earlier, I was so interested in you, that you regretted not focusing on AOV, right? You were focusing on LTV, trying to get the subscriptions, but you regretted that because you think you could have gotten more money from the acquiring business. How could you have known that, right? Like, I, it's so interesting to me hearing you yeah. say that because you couldn't know depending on what business it is i would imagine that ltv play would look better but you're saying because of that type of business that acquired you they don't look at it that way they would have rathered the cash they're not running analyses like that they're not like okay your ltv is going to be higher on subs like you know, imagine three months before you're selling your business you turn all the dials you can to hit a crescendo where you're maximizing revenue and profitability and not necessarily LTV on long-term customers. And that's the way I think about it. Like I should have just maximized short-term revenue and short-term uh, profitability. Having spoken to 25 buyers when we were running our process or like, you know, several dozen, a couple dozen buyers, nobody understood these things. Like if you try and sell your business today to Procter & Gamble, despite the fact that they've now gone through several of these acquisitions, they will still not know what that means. And I remember post-acquisition, I was actually like, you know, I reported to the guy who ran deodorants. And I was like, look, do you want me to maximize LTV or maximize uh, revenue? And he's like, I don't know how to answer that question. So just make your own choice. And um, I thought that was a brilliant answer on his part, where he's just like, I don't know. We've never had that type of question here. So do what you think is right. Nobody understands direct-to-consumer. If you're selling to another direct-to-consumer business, they will understand that. If you're selling to a big CPG they don't speak that language. They don't know what LTV is. They don't know what the repeat purchase rate looks like. There's an information asymmetry and you get to control it. 
and you get to control that narrative and you can push you can push all the levers you want and then control the information asymmetry so they hear what you want them to hear. That's a really powerful thing. So Moise, you created native, uh, very, so very, very focused to skew just one brand. Mm -hmm. And Nate, you're talking about you bought a brand, you're starting a brand. And one of the conversations on Twitter a lot these days is like the, the hold code, the, the holding company yeah. of multiple brands versus creating the native creating the, the cuts, the true classics, the gym sharks, where you focus on just one brand. I don't think there's one answer, but I was just curious to your thoughts on the holding company with uh, multiple brands of that maybe are not 50 million, 100 million, but like 5 million, 10 million and holding more of those. You know, it really depends on what, what type of outcome you're searching for. If you've got a hold co or if, you're, if you've got a holding company with five businesses doing $5 million in revenue, I don't know what you have. Like, who's going to buy that? Some private equity firm? Yeah, maybe a private equity firm is going to buy it, but they're going to have a lot of leverage in that because they're like, I'd like a CPG brand, an apparel brand, a shoe brand, and, you know, two other random things, an automotive brand. There's not a lot of strategic acquirers who are interested in things like that. One of the things that Hint, that happened at Hint is after launching Water, they launched Sunscreen and I think Deodorant, actually. Mm -hmm. And I was like, what is pace briefly? And I was like, what is this company doing? Who's going to buy these guys? Coca-Cola or Procter & Gamble? And Procter & Gamble is going to be like, I don't want a beverage company. And Coca-Cola is like, I don't want a sunscreen company. We're not in the business of creating over-the-counter cosmetics that are regulated by the government. And like, I think when, you're, when you have a hold co in so many different categories, you put yourself at a disadvantage in terms of selling that business to a strategic acquirer and maximizing your value. On the flip side of that coin, because I sort of have a, I'm trying to do it like this hold co structure myself. There's a lot of cash to be generated from businesses that generate $10 million in top line at a $1.5 million. It's not hard to get to a $10 million top line, $1.5 million EBITDA business. It's way harder to get to a $40 million top line, you know, $7 million EBITDA business. So it's a way easier to start four of those $10 million businesses than one $40 million business. And so if you're trying to maximize for cash flow or putting cash in your pocket, I would do the other one. I would go with the hold go and say, you know what, the, all these businesses are generating a ton of cash. If there's a cataclysmic event, like if someone finds screws in your deodorant and, you know, your sales go down, no problem. You know, it doesn't harm all of your brands. It just harms one of your brands. So for me, I would try, uh, I would think about the outcome that I want. If I'm looking to sell a business to a strategic acquirer, there's no strategic acquirers for four hold codes in four different categories. Uh, there's only private equity and they've got a lot of muscle uh, over you when you're doing so something like that. But if you're like, look, I'm trying to maximize for cash flow, I would do the easier roll of the dice, which is four hold or four businesses in a hold yeah, the way to do that is instead of trying to build brands that flip for a hundred or two hundred million, I think you'll have a lot more success building something to thirty or forty and selling it and doing that a few times versus trying to get one at a hundred or one at two hundred. But it depends like what your what your personal goal is, right? How much time you want to put in and and what you're looking for out of it. This question is for uh, Nick. I'm curious, what kind of growth strategies are you looking at or in channels? Um, when AOV for long weekend is 30, 35. I'm specifically interested in even at an earlier stage in a business when there might be only a few SKUs and you know there's only one purchase, where should we go when Facebook uh, and Instagram ads aren't, aren't exactly the, the best? 
When you say one purchase, do you mean that like it's not a repeat purchase item, but it has a $30 AOV? That's right. That's I'd right. shut the business down. Me too. <laughs> I would not that's, run yeah, that. That's a bad, like I, I wouldn't start that business. Unless you have, you know, like look at Feastables, right? Feastable, well, even then our AOV got to like 80 or 90, but that only works because you have Mr. Beast. Feastables would not work if we're running Facebook ads as a brand new company trying to convince people to buy something once. You can do low AOV if you have a high consumption rate or repeat purchase rate or it's something that fits into a routine and you know it's hard to take out of that routine but otherwise there's just no way you you mean there's no margin right if you have a $30 product let's say your margin is what 20 bucks maybe 18 bucks like now you have $18 to pay yourself pay your staff pay your rent and pay for ads it's really tough got it I'd probably just go like heavy on on influencer or find some sort of a celebrity or like do what uh, Isaac does, build a massive YouTube audience, and then you have your own distribution. No, I think your first answer is right, which is, and it's a, a hard answer, which is don't get involved in that type of business. And if you've got that type of business, switch to a different business. Like your time is your most precious asset that you're going to have. Yeah. It's going to be very difficult to build a meaningful business at $30 AOV on direct-to-consumer. Uh, with no repeat purchase rate. In fact, I cannot think of a single person who's done that successfully. Yeah. Thank you. Sure. Sure. But that's like a hard truth. Like, I, I, you know, it's not fun to say, but like, you know, that's going to be an uphill battle and you don't want to get involved in an uphill batter, battle for five years. Someone on here was like, you know, the Navy SEALs only pick, you know, pick battles that they can win. Go pick a battle that you can win that's way easier than that. Uh, what are your guys' thoughts on, I'd say, non-traditional discounting methods? I know like you guys have mentioned Apple and Apple does constant discounts for students or teachers or businesses, but they never change the prices of their products ever. Like their retailers will. So Walmart, Best Buy, et cetera, has ability to discount old products, but they lose margin on that, not Apple. But what Apple instead will do is give vouchers when they run sales, trying to protect the brand image that you know people are so worried about protecting without giving discounts but also incentivizing people to purchase by having them spend less money with a quote-unquote voucher or cashback incentive. Uh, you know, Native will run promos at Target and they'll say, buy two sticks and get a $5 Target gift card. And, you know, Native p- pays for that promotion. Great, no problem. Like, you know, non-traditional promotions are fantastic uh, if you can be creative about them or if they just drive revenue. There's nothing, and like, you know... Apple is maybe the exception to every single rule. And I wouldn't be like, okay, Apple is the brand that I want to emulate because, you know, they make incredible products that they have no problem spending $10 billion in R&D to produce a laptop. So I wouldn't necessarily compare myself to them. But yeah, use any type of promotion model that works for you. We used to give away free travel size deodorants because it would cost us 60 cents and the perceived value is $3. I think Sarah Curie does this promotion where she's like, uh, buy today and get a gift card that you can use next month because it helps her create consistent revenue for the next month, increases a repeat purchase rate. Like it's a, it's a brilliant strategy. And I wish we had done more of that. Uh, so I'm all for those things. Uh, just try and figure out what works in a way that helps consumption and doesn't like, you know, uh, we talk about brand value. You don't want to end up being J. Crew. Yeah. Or running like an evergreen 40%. That's right. Yeah. 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 yeah that, that's all I would say too. Earlier, you mentioned that your current feel about businesses as you'd rather build than buy. If you don't have a Mr. Beast in your corner, 
Isn't that inherently more risky by getting into something without a proven product market fit when you can, like you did, well, buy something for free? So like the brand that we started, we basically looked at data from other players in the market to understand like what are, what are the chances that we can hit success within a certain budget. So, you know, we set aside, let's say a $50,000 budget and said, all right, if we can't make this work, we're going to scrap the whole thing and move on to something else. So, you know, a celebrity would obviously help a ton, but, but like, you know, ads work, like good ads work. If you have good ads, you have good creative, you have good landing pages, you have good uh, storytelling, you have good like messaging and explaining, and you have an angle that differentiates you from the next product that sells the same thing then I think it can work. The other thing is we went opposite on AOV. So we went higher in AOV, which allowed us to play around a little bit more. It gives us more wiggle room. You know, we don't really have like overhead costs right now. So we have that wiggle room to play around and see if something works. And if it doesn't work within that budget, then we'd shut it down. But I think in the first like seven grand, we realized that it works. And so now it's just a matter of, okay, well, out of seven grand, we realized that this stuff is starting to work and that type of stuff that we thought was going to work doesn't work at all. We also then, you know, we'll, we'll like I, I, every night I'll watch an hour or two of user recordings on the site to see where people are clicking and what they're highlighting and what they're scrolling to and what they're stopping their scroll on. And then, you know, I'll make that adjustment to the landing page. And then the next day I'll see how it runs. You know, did the click-through rate on the listicle go from 48 to 53%? Or, you know, did I add a new variation that got a 63% click through? And, you know, what was the difference there? And why did that happen? Even down to like, you know, I'll, I'll go on LinkedIn and look up every single person who buys and see where do they live? What do they do? How much money do they make? And try to figure out. So is that on LinkedIn? Well, like, you can assume like job title, <laughs> where they live. But there's definitely ways to do it, right? Like every, there's so many, think about how many Shopify stores are started every day. Not all of them are going to find a celebrity but all of them can figure out a way to try to crack that code. And if you crank, can't crack the code, then, you know, let it go. But a lot of the stuff that we, you know, started and will continue to start is all based on like data that we see, right? That's the other advantage that I guess we have is like, we get to see a lot of what works and what doesn't work before we decide to go make that investment. Are you using Hotjar to do that optimization or something else? Hell no. Please. I'm brown. We're cheap. Microsoft Flarity. Is that free? Completely free. Wow. And it's got uh, heat maps, scroll depth maps, user recordings. Wow. And it's got this one thing that no other analytics platform has called dead clicks, which is you can see what people click to where they think they're going somewhere, but they're not going anywhere. And so, you know, like a lot of times on a landing page, it might be the logo at the top, or it might be an image that's not hyperlinked, or it might be like sometimes we'll find titles are not hyperlinked and people are clicking it. And so you change that, all of a sudden your click-through rate goes way up. That's great. Okay, one last one. Um, hey guys, firstly, love the podcast. Enjoyed listening to it a lot. And Nick, um, we just got our Hooks lander back. Let's go. And it is absolute fire. Love it. So uh, everyone, go to Hooks. It's it's great. Um, went to this guy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> man. Yeah, I gave him two hundred dollars at the beginning, and yeah. now he's about to get three hundred. <laughs> Coming off my uh, the Hooks payment, I hope. My question is actually for Moyes. Moyes, we've kind of built our business a lot based on your philosophy, um, which is all about focus, single skew, single channel, um, not trying to do too much. And that served us uh, incredibly well up to now. We're kind of six and a half million pound run rate, profitable, bootstrapped. What's the category? CPG, so cleaning products. Okay. 
So, you know, all the same kind of stuff and very broad market can scale quite far. Um, but we're getting a lot of pressure, I think, to do with the market and where, where the market's at to lose that focus, go into wholesale, expand internationally. Yeah. I just wanted to know if you were building a business now, how far you take that focus concept. Would you take it, you know, because you took it to 50 million pounds in sales. How would you think about that today? It certainly depends on market size. Like, you know, the United States is great because it's a massive market. If I was in Canada, I'd be like, I need to go to inter I need to go internationally much faster. But uh, where is where are you getting that pressure from? Uh, a bit from our board and uh, just ad advisors and that yeah. kind of thing. You know, I, I don't know a good way to put this, but I, generally I think boards are complete garbage. And so are most advisors. Um, you know, I, I've told this story before. When we were running our business, people would be like, um, our, our, like our largest investor was like, um, you need to launch at least one more SKU in order to sell this business. You'll never be able to sell a single SKU business. And I was like, you know, what do you know about anything? Uh, you know, you don't. You never, you don't know what's going on in the world. You don't know what this business looks like. Other people would come to me and they'd be like, um, you aren't doing enough with influencer marketing. Like you need to focus on influencer marketing. That's where the money's at. And that's what everyone's doing today. And I was like, do you have any idea how good Facebook ads are? Yeah. You think I'm going to spend time at like finding 50 influencers where I could just add a zero and make more money tomorrow? Get the fuck out of here. Like, you know, it would get me so upset because I'm like, I think about this business every morning, every evening, like all day, every day. Uh, you have the audacity to come out here and think about my business for two hours and then tell me how to run it. Uh, you know, I can feel myself getting upset right now. And I'm not even running a business. I'm getting upset on your behalf. I would just do whatever you think is right. Anybody who tells you that like that's not right, you know, you're making the you're the guy in the captain's chair. Their bet was on you when they agreed to invest in the business, and uh, you know you can listen to their advice, but I would do whatever I think is right, and I would you know respectfully say, hey, I don't think this is right. Uh, I think this is why we should do this. And if they keep pressuring you, I would literally stop taking their phone calls. Uh, we had a guy uh, sort of do that to us once, and I was like, he was an investor. He put in twenty five thousand dollars. I was like, I'm happy to give you twenty five thousand dollars back tomorrow. Uh, you can have it back, but you're never, ever going to get to influence this business. Um, and he's like, no, you can keep the money then. Um, <laughs> nobody is thinking about your business as much as you are. One of the fears that I had if we expanded into different categories is I was like, let's say we launched uh, toothpaste and body wash pre-P&G. Well, what if we were trying to sell to somebody who wanted only a deodorant company and didn't want a toothpaste company or a body wash company? That type of focus made it so that anybody who was interested in a deodorant business could think of it. And it was like a diamond in the rough. Like during the sale process, when Unilever came in, I was like, does anyone know, do you guys, are you guys good at selling internationally? Because, you know, Unilever is based abroad. I was like, if you guys are good at selling internationally, think about what we're doing here in the United States and think about what you could do in Europe. When it came to like P&G, I was like, look, are you guys good at selling other SKUs and other categories? A good product development? Well, think about what this brand could do if it was in other categories. When the Dr. Teal's guy came, I was like, are you guys good at selling into brick and mortar stores? We have no idea what the fuck we're doing there. But you, if you guys do, think about what this $50 million brand could do in Target and in Walmart. And uh, that single skew uh, focus became a real asset when we were selling the business, as opposed to my lead investor who was like, hey, you need to launch another skew. This isn't going to work without it. So I would do the same thing. But more importantly, like, you know, I don't know your business and I don't know what you want out of the business and where you're selling and how you're selling. And if you think those categories are easy or hard to get into, I would do exactly what I think was right. And I would tell everyone else to go fuck themselves. Great, thank you. Dude. Wow. Sir? Yeah. 
Thanks for tuning in. We'll be back next time to cut through the noise in CPG, retail, and e-commerce. And if you enjoyed this episode, then why not share it with a friend? And be sure to subscribe wherever you listen so you don't miss the next one. 